Corinthians chapter 4 this morning. And as you're turning your Bibles there, you'll remember the last couple of weeks we started uh, and, and really realizing that the context of this letter is Paul writing to a church that he planted and he was there for 18 months. And while he was there for 18 months, uh, this was a place that had some problems. Paul didn't plant the church there because he knew it would be easy. He planted it in Corinth because it was a center for the surrounding communities. It was kind of a hub, and there was a lot of influence that could be grasped from being involved in Corinth. Perhaps even down the road, he saw that there would be churches planted off of this main hub. And so because of that, Paul planted this church in Corinth. He spent 18 months there, more than likely because of the problems that were there, but also because he loved the people. The minister that is planted in an area, God supernaturally, I believe, gives a love for the people, whether they're from there or not. You know, when Kelly and I moved down here, God planted us here. We knew that's where we were called to go. We only knew a few people, but as we've lived here and as we've gotten to know people from church, other churches and from people that aren't from churches and, and don't know the Lord, God's given us a supernatural love for them because that's where we're invested. We've been planted here and we've taken up shop. We've bought a house and we live here and we buy our groceries down here from time to time. And, and so the reality is, is that God used Paul in that area because he stirred his heart. A minister is not separated from their heart. He doesn't just, he's not a robot. If God wanted to use robots, he would build them. He'd send them out to share the gospel. And it would be so much easier than having someone that has a physical flesh that can be tormented by illness and, and all those other things. It, it would just be so much easier. And so Paul has his heart on his sleeve in this letter. And he's revealed to the Corinthian church, hey, this first letter that I wrote to you, I realized that it probably came off as harsh, as a rebuke, but you guys needed to be sobered up. You needed to be rebuked. You needed to be corrected because the things that you were allowing into the church were not of the Lord, but they were from your culture. See, here's what happens is any church has the temptation to be affected more by the culture that they're in than by the church having an effect on the culture. So we need to watch for that. And so Paul, as a pastor and as a church planner, goes, hey, watch out because the ideas of the pagan temples and the family down the street that don't know the Lord, they're influencing you more than you're influencing them just due to the fact that you may not be fully trusting in the Lord yet. There may be salvation in your lives, but there's some perfecting that God wants to do in you. He wants to transform you so that you reflect the character and the attributes of Jesus. And he, each one of our lives, though we might be saved and tell people that we're Christians, and no doubt it's true, there are still blind spots that you and I have. And so Paul wrote to them, hey, here's some blind spots. You're commending yourselves because you've allowed this person who is in sexual sin to come in and fellowship with you, but he's claiming to be a believer, and so there needs to be some discipline here because if not, he's going to lead other people astray. And while he leads other people astray, there will be all kinds of corruption and people without holiness, no one can see the Lord. And so the Lord is calling us to holiness, but he doesn't call us to change ourselves. He says, I want you to live this way, but I'm going to give you my spirit so that you can. Anytime God calls us to do something, he gives us the power to do it. So as he's transforming this church, Jesus, not Paul, as Jesus is transforming this church, what happens is that 
the problems go away, but then more problems crop up. I grew up not in Iron County, but just on the edge of it. Uh, there's this big hill on 221 right after the gun club as you're going towards Farmington. And there's this big hill that everybody used to wreck on every time it would rain or snow called Stono. And on the bottom is Henson Road. And about a mile down on the end was our little plot. We had about a 80-acre spread. And down there, we didn't plant anything because... If you planted something, you would find, as you put a tiller or something in the ground, that just below the surface, there was rocks. And they weren't just any rocks. They were rocks like we have in Iron County. They were granite. And so every year, we would pull up granite rocks, and we would put them along our driveway. And then the next year, it would rain, and more rocks would crop up. And then the next year, it would rain, and more rocks. And we became rock farmers. So we lined our driveway, and by the time we left, our entire driveway had these huge boulders of granite along the way. And so just like that, in the church in Corinth, Paul was a rock farmer. And as rocks were revealed, he was trying to help them to remove them so they would have softer soil. And as they had softer soil, God would find more rocks, and so they would keep cropping up. And in the Corinthian church, it's not that God was saying, hey, you've got problems and they aren't fixable. He was saying, let me help you with them. Let me send Paul. And as Paul helps you remove these rocks, what you're going to find is that you still haven't arrived. There's more rocks. And the first time that we will be in perfection, I believe, is when we're face-to-face with Jesus and he's finished with that process. But until then... We have this hope of heaven where Jesus continues to purify our lives just as Jesus is already pure. And so that long introduction is to say that Paul is writing to a problem church and he's written concerning many things, one of which was the offender I alluded to earlier who was in sexual sin that they put out of the fellowship so that he would be realizing that he was in sin and when our sins separate us from God they also separate us from fellowship if we don't repent of them and so now that this brother has repented Paul says okay now bring him back in so that he's not so sorrowful that he just disavows the faith completely bring him back in and comfort and encourage him now he's ready to repent and then in chapter 3 Last week we had Steve and he, he taught and he, he expressed to them, because many of them questioned about Paul. They said, well, if Paul's experienced all this trial and tribulation, maybe he's not in the will of God. Surely if an apostle of God was going out and sharing the message, he wouldn't experience any problems. And so Paul, we wonder if you're actually an apostle of God or not. And Paul says to them, he says, uh, what do you want me to do? Get letters of recommendation so that you'll believe that I'm sent by God? What Paul said, and Steve made a really good point to say last week, was if you want a letter of recommendation, look at your own lives. Your lives are a, an epistle, a living letter that's been written to all those who can see that you're not what you once were, but you're not the same anymore. You're changed. There's a new nature in you. And this new nature has been given to you by Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. You're not once you, what you once were. And so you're changed. And the very change that's happened in your life, you know, is not because of yourselves because you tried to change on your own. It's because God has worked in your life and he's used me to impart that wisdom to you. And so Paul says, if you want a letter of recommendation, why don't you take a look back a few years and see where you came from? Because if you realize where you came from, you'll see that you're different now 
And the fact that you're different kind of shows you that the, the message I gave you was powerful. And so perhaps uh, you need to go ahead and just realize that the Lord has sent me. But then Paul, you could see where they might see that as kind of a boasting phrase, like, wow, you think really high of your, highly of yourselves, Paul, yourself, Paul. And so Paul goes on to express in this, um, in this passage today in chapter 4 that, you know, God does send to us the glory of the gospel, but he sends it to us in earthen vessels. I, I call us cracked pots. You know, you think of an earthen vessel, it's made out of clay, it's made out of dirt, and then it's fashioned, but it's fragile. It's breakable. It, it's, it's like the other day, um, uh, there's been folks from Parkland that have been sending us meals in the evening. And they send us meals and, and dishes that they believe they can trust to me. So they're not giving us their best china. They're sending us like, hey, here's the foam thing you can get at Walmart and put some food in. And I, I'm glad because I probably will lose the thing or break it or do, you know. But they gave us, one of the ladies gave us this meal and it was, had just come out of the oven. And it was in those big, huge foil kind of pans. They're not 9 by 13. They're a little bit bigger. But they're not the vessels that I guarantee they, they set out at the nice formal deal. Uh, meal, not deal, meal. And so my point is, is that they sent us this wonderful meal, but they sent it in something that, that wasn't their best china. And the Lord has prepared for us a meal, the gospel, that saves us and cleanses us and changes us and redeems our lives. But he sent it to us in what we would call everyday dishes. He sent us this meal in Tupperware. Now here's the deal. Tupperware these days is really good, but the Tupperware they used to make was you would heat it up and then it would get really dry and it would crack and break. Have you guys seen Napoleon Dynamite before? My wife knew I was going there. Okay. Anybody else? Or no, is this not going to make any? Okay. Napoleon Dynamite. It's a ridiculous movie. I get it. But in there, they start selling Tupperware. They're kind of entrepreneurs and and uh, Napoleon's brother gets this piece of Tupperware. It's like my favorite scene, one of many that I will probably call my favorite scene. But as he's demonstrating the, the flexibility and the durability and the awesomeness of this Tupperware, he goes, you know, let me go show you how strong it is. And they don't sit, show that. It's all part of a montage. But then he sets it behind his van tire, throws the van in reverse. It's one of those creepy vans with it, that you travel across the country in. He throws it in reverse and he backs up over the, and he goes, it just shatters. And he's like, of course, his line is, dang it. And he leaves. You know, he's like all disgruntled. He's like, that should have worked. But that kind of Tupperware is not like what we have today. I think our Tupperware is a little bit stronger. My point is, is if you took a nice meal that you were going to send to somebody and you wanted them to know that you cared, you would not send it to them in that Tupperware. You would send it in a very nice dish. And, and the reality is, is that the Lord has sent us the meal to end all meals. Jesus Christ, his body, our bread, his blood, what cleanses us of all unrighteousness. But you know what he sent it to us in? The cheapest Tupperware you can get, us. We're made out of clay. Remember in Genesis, our bodies, they, they were formed out of dust. And to dust they will return. And so think about it. How many times would you take an awesome meal that you spent tons of time preparing and send it to somebody in some cutlery or in some sort of Tupperware that wouldn't last? You know, what if it gets lost? What if it breaks on the way and it spills everywhere? But the beauty of the gospel sent to people in this life 
through us is that if we are cracked, which we all are, whether you think so or not, the beauty is, is that as it's going to its destination, whoever we think it's supposed to go to, we are cracked and so we leak the gospel out on everyone that we see along the way. And even though we leak it along the way, it's not lost. It goes to the person we walk by. It goes to the person at the grocery store that we say, God bless you to. It goes to the person that we see at our job that sees us handle a trial and get cracked a little bit and the glory spills out. And so I've kind of gotten ahead of myself, but I just couldn't help but think about the fact that when we have a nice meal, we send it in something awesome. And when the Lord has this beautiful meal prepared, he sends it through us. Faulty vessels, crackable, breakable, crushable. But he sends it. He delights to send the message through us. Paul's going to say here in chapter 4, because, well, let me just read verse 1. Therefore, he says, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. He says, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure, verse 7, in earthen vessels, here's the reason, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. If you see a beautiful, wonderful meal in a cracked pot or in a vessel that's not even looks nice, you're going to go, man, that meal was awesome, but I, if I'd have just looked at the package, I'd have thought that was going to be horrible. And that happens, right? I mean, we, we go to a Chinese restaurant, no matter what Chinese restaurant you go to, you get that same little cardboard box with the little writing and the calligraphy on it. And it could be good and it could be bad, but it's just a cardboard box, but nobody cares about the box. They care about the glory inside, that wonderful chicken of every kind, you know, with some sort of sauce or pepper or, you know, whatever, and definitely got to have some rice, some fried rice. I don't like the, the steamed rice. I like the fried rice. Um, if anything is good, it's always good fried. I mean, think about vegetables. But what he says there in verse 1 is, we have this ministry as we've received mercy and we do not lose heart. We don't lose heart because we've received this ministry according to the mercy of God. Now think about this. Paul wrote this. How did Paul get saved? Where was he before Jesus? You know, we read this passage here and in verse 3 it says, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Think about Paul's testimony. We studied Acts a couple years ago, but let's go back to Acts chapter 7. Because before Paul was walking with Jesus... He was not walking with Jesus. That's how every person starts, not walking with Jesus. 
You know, we, we don't think about it that way because many of us maybe have known the Lord for a long time, but we all started without hope. We all started without redemption for our souls. We all started without salvation or a relationship with Jesus. So here's in Acts chapter, I said seven, but in chapter eight, it says, Saul was consenting to the death of Stephen. They had just stoned Stephen to death, the first martyr. And at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles and devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. They were broken over over Stephen's death. So he's just talked about the apostles, right? And of course, our minds go, Apostle Paul. He wrote a good portion of the New Testament. But there in that next verse, as for Saul, who was not an apostle at that time, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. These were Christians. And so Saul starts out in the book of Acts as a non-believer, someone who had had the gospel veiled, and because he had a veil over his face, he didn't understand the truth, even though he had all the Old Testament, he didn't see Jesus as the fulfillment of being the Messiah, and so because of that, he wanted to thwart anyone who would decide to follow Jesus. And so here we have Paul in the next chapter, says Saul, uh, chapter 9, verse 1, still breathing threats and murder, against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he asked for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were by the way, which is what they called those who followed Jesus, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So they said, okay, well, let's call ourselves the way. And as he did that, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice. Now, think about what Paul wrote here in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, those who are blinded by the God of this age, lest they would believe and have God's light shine on them. So Saul is just, or Paul is just referring back. He's going, I know where I was before I became a Christian. And I know where they are because that's where I came from. Many times we're separated from unbelievers because we forget where we were before we were with Christ. But he says, God opened my eyes. He shone his light around me. Then verse 4, he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? So his response to Jesus speaking to him is, number one, Lord, who are you? And number two, what do you want me to do? And then after that, it says, he trembled, sorry, verse six, part two says, the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. So you think, okay, so Saul's good now. He steps up, he walks into the city, he's going to listen for the voice of Jesus. But what it says there, the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. So isn't it interesting, Saul, of all people, if you'd asked him, do you see what God wants to do? He would have said, absolutely. 
And then the Lord shone his light, which light typically reveals, right? It helps us see. But in the case of Saul, where he was spiritually blind and didn't know it, the light of God actually blinded him and made him not see, which is actually what helped him to see, if that makes any sense. And so in the, the eyes of the world, they go, hey, I get it. You're talking about Jesus. I've heard the gospel, all this stuff. I, I get it, but like, I don't see it. I don't believe it. I got to taste, touch, or smell, or whatever it is that holds them back from believing. I can't do those things, and therefore it can't be true. And so what they were telling Paul is, hey, this gospel that you're sharing, it seems to me like it's veiled, like it's a mystery. It, I, I don't get it. And since I don't get it, it can't be true. We've heard people say that, right? I don't get it, therefore it can't be true. I don't understand it, therefore it can't be understandable, which I think is kind of a proud statement. If I can't understand it, then it can't happen. Well, let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I don't understand rocket science, but it still happens. I don't understand what makes earthquakes happen and not predictable in some ways, but that doesn't mean that they don't happen. And so the Lord, through the pen of Paul here, tells them that their minds are veiled. People that don't know the Lord, their minds, are, they're blinded. The God of this age has sold them a lie, and because of that, they've closed their eyes to the truth. And until the Lord opens their eyes, they won't be able to see. Saul was that way, and he knew that other people were that way. So it should change the way that we try to share the gospel with people. Many times we try to talk their ears off, and we don't pray for them. It's a spiritual issue that they don't believe the gospel. It's not always a reasoning thing. And I thought for years, if I just talked people and convinced them on my own will and with my own words, that they would believe in Jesus and follow him just like I did. But then I took out of the account that it's a spiritual issue, and so the Holy Spirit has to remove the veil. Now, I say that thinking about Acts chapter, uh, sorry, I shouldn't have turned back, but in Acts chapter 9, that's what happened to Paul. When there were a certain disciple at Damascus, verse 10, named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and Ananias said, here I am, Lord. So the Lord said, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he's praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias, in other words, he's seen you, and coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went his way, entered the house, laid his hands on him, and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. Interesting, right? There were scales on his eyes, much like the veil that Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians. Then all who heard were, excuse me, scales fell from his eyes and he received his sight at once. He arose and was baptized. And when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. 
And immediately after that, he starts preaching about Jesus to the Jews because Paul was a Jew. And so my point is, is that there's two things going on here in tandem. Running alongside one another, you have two things going on. You have Jesus revealing himself to Saul on the way to Damascus where he was going to go persecute Christians. And in the meantime, the Holy Spirit is speaking to Ananias saying, hey, here comes Saul and here's what I want you to do. I want you to lay your hands on him. The interesting thing to me is that this comfort, this consolation is brought on by somebody who fears Saul but believes what Jesus has said is true. And so the Lord tells him, you need to go meet up with Saul And he tells Saul, I want you to go to Damascus. And when their paths intersect, what you see is that you have a person who was praying, heard the voice of the Lord, and then you have this unbeliever who needs the touch of God to have his eyes open to the truth. And so we as believers, our job is not so much to go out and tell people they need Jesus, although we do get those opportunities, but to pray for opportunities to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to speak truth into people's lives. And when the Lord is speaking to them and they cross your path and you confirm what the Lord's been speaking to them through what he tells you to tell them, the reality is not only will they be saved, but God will open their eyes to the truth and they will become a brother and sister in the Lord. Many times we put it all on us, but it's really us working in tandem with the Holy Spirit who desires to open their eyes. And so Saul was an example of this, and he tells them back in 2 Corinthians 4, their minds were blinded by the God of this age, and they do not believe lest the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. And then Paul says this, for we do not preach ourselves, this isn't something we came up with on our own, but we preach lost my place, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves are bondservants of Jesus for his sake. In other words, we've given ourselves to do whatever he gives us to do. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so look at this. Here Paul is talking about the light of God and the light that opens men's eyes to the truth. But then he says, For it is God who commanded the light to shine out of the darkness. The same God that spoke and created light in our universe is also the same God who desires to speak and bring light and life into individual souls. He shines light into our eyes, and the Bible says that the eyes are the gate to the soul, giving us spiritual clarity so that we can walk with him, so that we can see his presence and his actions in this life. But this same light that God spoke into creation, he desired to speak into the lives of people. And as he does this, he calls us out of the darkness and into the light. Now what's the problem is in John chapter 3, verse 16, we know that part, right? John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever would believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's the good news, right? For God did not send, verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. 
Verse 18, he who believes in him is not condemned anymore, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. We talked about the ministry of condemnation. The law showed us our flaws. It showed us that we don't measure up to God's standard. So in verse 19, it says, this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. People don't want Jesus because their deeds are evil and they're hiding. They don't want the light. If I go into the light, here's the lie that Satan tells them. If you go into the light, people are going to know, and then what? Then you're going to be revealed, you'll be ashamed. But the beauty of the gospel is that God finds out. He already knows your sins. No one else's opinion of you matters anyway. And then when you come into the light, yes, everything is known, but you can't be freed of something until it's known. You can't be healed of a sickness until the doctor knows that you're sick and he sees all the problems. You know, many of us don't want to go to the doctor because if we go, we might find out we have something that they have to give us surgery over and none of us wants any of that because surgery hurts. People don't want to come to the knowledge of Jesus because if they do, number one, they'll be revealed, and number two, they really like their sin. Even though it it keeps them in bondage, they they don't want to let go of it. But what they don't realize is that the thing that they hold on to so tightly is what's going to drag them to hell. But Jesus came to set those who are captive free. Not free to do anything they want, but free to truly live. And we can't we live until the sins and the habits and the things that we do in our lives that kill us are taken from us. And what we're going to find out in the next part of this chapter is just that, that Jesus wants to set us free, not just so that we can be free, but also so that we can go and share the same message so that others can be free. And even though we experience trials in this life, what he's going to say next week is that those trials though we really hate them, they crack us up and they reveal our weak spots, but then the glory of Jesus pours out. So I guess at the beginning of the message, I kind of got ahead of myself because we're not going to get there this morning. But the beauty of the gospel is that it shines light on our hearts. It reveals to us who we really are, not who we think we are. And as it reveals to us who we really are, um, we can be real with the Lord and then that frees us up to be real with the people around us. People can relate to us if we remember where we came from and we don't just remember who we are now. Remember where you came from and you will have a great heart of compassion for those who are around you who also are in the spot that you once were. So let's pray. Father, um, here we are with Paul um, and he is revealed.